大家晚上好，这里是正在为您。Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. The scene is short and emotional. A girl runs through the desert to catch up with an injured man who is led away by guards. He turns around and watches her fall, get up, fall again, and get up again. Then the guards force him to march on. The short scene is part of the movie One Second by the acclaimed Chinese director Zhang Yimou. The film, we have been told, is set during the Cultural Revolution and tells the story of an escaped prisoner and a girl who has stolen a newsreel containing the one-second footage that the man desperately wants to see. But that short scene in the desert, those 30 seconds of the trailer, are basically all we have seen so far of Zhang's film, because one second was pulled from the Berlin Film Festival earlier this month. Just days before its first ever screening, the film was withdrawn. The official explanation from China: technical problems during post-production. Really, technical problems? Hello, I'm Ruth Kirchner, and in this podcast, I want to discuss Zhang Yimou, Chinese filmmaking, and the political environment directors operate in. And I want to know if Chinese films, despite the many restrictions directors face, may one day rival those of Hollywood in winning audiences around the globe. I'm joined by Professor Ying Zhu, a leading scholar on Chinese cinema and media studies. She teaches at City University of New York and at Hong Kong Baptist University, and joins me now in the Merrick's Experts Studio here in Berlin. Welcome, Professor Zhu. Now there has been a lot of speculation that the technical reasons for withdrawing Zhang Yimou's one second are just a pretext for censorship. What is your reading of the situation? You know, I think my speculations just as good as, as anyone else's speculation for short of more information or better information. I don't have more insights, and、uh, but it's safe to say a film that projecting the future might <laughs> have a better opportunity than than a film that looking back at a certain period of time in history. Because the Cultural Revolution is still a sensitive topic in China, isn't it? I think aspects of it. Depending on how you depict it, I'm not equipped to comment on this film because I haven't seen the film and、uh, and、I、admire Zhang Yimou's work and and I was looking forward to watching this film. But then withdrawing a film from a festival that is pretty unusual, isn't it? Well, that has been the norm when it comes to、uh, Chinese entrance to、uh, various film festivals. That this is not certainly the same, you know, the first time. And it's not too surprising. But then,、uh, talking about Zhang Yimou himself, he rose to international fame through and at the Berlin Film Festival in the early 1990s. He then later directed the、uh, opening ceremony for the Beijing Olympics in 2008. So,、uh, tell me a bit about him. I mean, what kind of figure is he? Where does he fit in in the Chinese、uh, filmmaking scene? He is one of the pioneers of the Chinese new wave filmmaking that essentially put the Chinese、uh, cinema on the world map. That was back in、uh, early to mid 1980s.、Uh, he was a cinematographer for the Yellow Earth, and and he went on to uh, uh, produce a number of highly acclaimed films. And as you mentioned, one of them debuted in in Berlin years ago. And I think、uh, this small scale film, one second. I, I suppose was to be the comeback film, you know, after many、uh, years. So yeah, he's a very unique figure、uh, in Chinese film history. He made a transition from being a rebel. 
to you know carrying on a more conformative approach, so to speak, that really kind of speak to you know what the uh, both the grassroots and 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 the you know top brass demand or or expect. Uh, so he's worked uh, very productively with the uh, Chinese regulators. So someone of his standing and his experience, then I mean, although as you said, we don't really know why his film was withdrawn. He would really understand how far he can go or what he can or what he cannot do. He really knows how to work the system. So it might just be a technical issue, Danny. <laughs> so you never know. It, it, sometimes it just could be personal. Maybe you're on the wrong side of someone who has a say. You really, really don't know. But then on a more general level, tell us a bit how the Chinese film industry operates. What hurdles does a Chinese film then have to pass before it can be released to a general audience? Right. For a film to be produced, you have to, the script has to be approved before, before you even get into production. And once the film is made, and you also have to submit a final film for uh, approval. And I'd assume, in the, in the case of Zhang Yimou, and assume all these, the first two steps were completed successfully. And so there is a change of uh, approval mechanism since last March. And now because uh, film, film Bureau and also uh, the Ministry of uh, Radio, Film and Television and Press is now unfolded under the propaganda ministry. So you now people, the bureaucrats at that level, uh, are now tasked with uh, final approval. So there is a mechanical change at that level, operational change actually. So that actually enhanced the control. There's more control over the filmmaking process. Was was a tightened control of narrative. So now because film is considered as such an important tool for cultural propagation. Therefore, you know, the films must uh, go through layers of screening, especially for a film that would require for international distribution or being sent out for uh, international participating in international film festivals. Uh, So, I mean, there will be an actual layer of oversight from the party's perspective. So how much um, room then is there for, let's say, creative filmmaking in China, uh, considering these uh, approval processes that a filmmaker has to go through? I think there are two different things. Creativity is not just political. You know, setting aside a political issue, you, you are at a liberty in tackling many aspects of social life. And then I think it's the question of how skillful you are in making films that really uh, tackle these issues. But on the other hand, you know your limits. So there is a room for creativity, in other words, and so long as you know where the boundary is. Um, I remember a Chinese filmmaker once telling me that uh, you have to think about the whole approval process when you're writing the script. Something involving the police requires police approval. Uh, A happy end passes those approval levels more easily than a film that ends on a more somber note. So it impacts on creativity on all sorts of levels. So so that's interesting because the Chinese government is very keen in urging its film industry to tell China's story and tell China's story well. And one of the criteria for telling stories well is to give a very positive ending. And according to uh, actually Xi Jinping, who is supposedly a big fan of Hollywood films, one of the, the things he likes about Hollywood films is it provides an absolutely positive ending. Right? And so this is kind of a very interesting way of judging whether a film is, is good or bad, and, but not necessarily from the kind of artistic perspective. 
But given this situation and the government oversight, then you say there is room for creative filmmaking within certain boundaries. limits and within oh, certain boundaries. boundaries. Yeah. yeah, so that gets to this notion of self-censorship. We all practice self-censorship to a certain extent. But I think the, the real remarkable thing is to be able to do something really creative within certain boundaries. You know, you're pushed against a wall to do something. And so I really admire some of the, you know, my fellow Chinese filmmakers who are able to perform these tasks in an extremely difficult situation. They can make real good stories and, and knowing your boundary. So you say some people do well within this system and they know how to manage it, but um, do these um, boundaries impact on the ability of Chinese filmmakers to produce films that, let's say, appeal beyond the Chinese audience, that um, are more like Hollywood-like, that appeal to an international audience and uh, maybe try to emulate what Hollywood is sometimes so good at, 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 at producing? Yeah, make no mistake. Uh, censorship uh, is, a, is a very challenging issue. And would Chinese filmmakers and Chinese film industry be better off without strict censorship? You bet. They will. So the reality of which is they live in this kind of a climate, and this kind of cultural climate. And, and also I wanted to kind of point out that censorship is not the invention of the CCP. Censorship exists, especially film censorship existed during the Republican era. So, so this is kind of a continuation of a very heavy-handed interventionist approach towards cultural and all political affairs. That's, that's part of the... Chinese political system dating back, gosh, a long time ago. We're talking about a dynasty now, right? And also I wanted to, to also say that certain real critical small-scale films, sometimes they, they might not touch the party nerve, that they, but they might not sit well with the market. So censorship comes from both. There is a party censorship, a state censorship. There's also the market censorship. Market does not like certain films that they, you know, distributors do not think it will sell well. So, so that immediately eliminates uh, many very interesting small-scale independent films. This is Merrick's Experts. My guest today is Ying Zhu, a leading scholar on Chinese cinema. We're discussing China's movie industry and its relationship with Hollywood. Uh, you mentioned uh, Xi Jinping a little earlier on, the party and uh, state leader and his admiration for Hollywood. So is that then what uh, the Chinese film industry, I mean, if you can generalize it in such a term, is aspiring to and um, producing something that is on par, on a par with what Hollywood is doing and has that universal appeal? Oh, yeah. Chinese film, Chinese cinema, Chinese film industry has been emulating Hollywood from day one since the very beginning of the birth of Chinese cinema. So the pioneers of Chinese uh, film basically followed Hollywood's model in terms of its institutional structure, production mode, marketing strategies, and so on and so forth. The connection with Hollywood stopped after China banned Hollywood in 1950. And so once Hollywood returned, starting in the late 1980s, and there's no stop. Then the Chinese film industry has been chasing after Hollywood for, you know, as far as I know. And so the, the goal is to really, uh, perhaps one day, will, they will be able to surpass uh, Hollywood. Uh, but we shall see. But uh, this universal successes, the universally appealing films, that is still eluding the Chinese film industry. Why is that? Yeah, I think uh, the Chinese filmmakers now realize, too, the, uh, this kind of heavy-handed message film, the film that carries party's message, just doesn't work. Global audiences don't buy that. And so they're trying now to make films that are more subtle in carrying out these 
cultural propagation uh, mission. I think they're trying to figure out a way to make films that can be very grand, but at the same time really have this personal appeal. And I have yet to see many of these films to, to come out of, of China. Because also some of these big films, they haven't really been very successful internationally. Even though there have been sort of cooperations between China and Hollywood. I was thinking of The Great Wall, which wasn't a very successful film internationally. Um, then there were other films that were extremely successful in China, uh, produced in China, Wolf Warrior 2. Is the Chinese audience then very different from, let's say, other international audiences? I don't think, uh, I mean, there's always a generational gap in Chinese youth, like uh, youth everywhere, and they're all very savvy. They're all well-versed in how Hollywood tells stories. They see, you know, a Hollywood film, they recognize it. And so The Great War, which it did not have a very good word of mouth, but it made money nevertheless. And uh, the other movie, The Mag, uh, which came out last year. It was a huge blockbuster. And Meg is a milestone film in the history of co-production between Hollywood and China in that it opened well both in China and in the U.S. Backtrack to uh, a year before, in 2017, another film that made a critical wave in China and also box office wave in China is Wolf Warrior Two, But the Wolf Warrior Two did not open well at all in the U.S., so you you kind of see, so from Great War to Wolf Warrior Two, and to the Mag, and the Chinese uh, the producers, co-producers, both Hollywood and its Chinese partners are trying to figure out a way to do story that will be more subtle in its messaging carrying, in, in very, more subtle in carrying the political order, but in, in a different level, really incorporating Hollywood's know-how to make you know these stories that will cater to universal audiences. A more subtle message, but a message nevertheless, because uh, China sees the cinema as a as a soft power tool, right? Oh, absolutely, yes. There is a message. It's, it's a matter of how you deliver the message, how you package the message. And I think this is what certain party leaders see, that Hollywood is very good at doing this. Which brings us to the importance of the Chinese market, because Hollywood really needs China these days, doesn't it? Yes, yes. China is poised to be the largest film market, surpassing North America. Uh, in a matter of uh, years, probably next year, the year after. So Hollywood needs the Chinese market. So it, it, would it then be true to say that maybe Hollywood needs China more than, than China needs Hollywood because of that big market share? Actually, not necessarily, because China understands the importance of, of cinema to its image building, and they're heavily utilizing Hollywood's talent, resources, and so on and so forth. So in, in many ways, China needs Hollywood to tell its story. So it's a more a matter of to what extent Hollywood will start to speak Chinese, telling the Chinese stories. But how much influence is there then, um, Chinese influence on Hollywood? Because if the Chinese market is so important, how far would then Hollywood go to maybe tweak scripts or, or produce films that are appealing to a Chinese audience or are appealing to the to the Chinese authorities. Yeah, you will see more and more stories of highly sanitized China images. So that is, you know, the, the function of this kind of collaboration and where market is the king and where the market also is under the sway of of the party directives. And and also, I must emphasize the grassroots, the Chinese audiences too wanted to see positive Chinese images. So in a way, you do see the kind of echoing, right? And to Hollywood, it's, in the end, it's money. Hollywood's not in there to really propagate Chinese culture. It's about the market. You know, Hollywood has been doing this for centuries. This is nothing new. 
to the American studios. But the um, American film critic Martha Bailey, she recently here said on the Merrick's Experts podcast that uh, Hollywood was so keen to stay in the Chinese market that it was willing to compromise freedom of expression. Would you agree with that? I think... Uh This is nothing new, again. I, I must emphasize, Hollywood has been doing this. To them, it's not about a uh, compromise or sacrifice of freedom of speech. It's it's a matter of uh, marketing strategy, localization. It's localizing. Hollywood's localizing strategy is to make sure that uh, films will be uh, non-offensive to its destination countries. So years ago, in the 1940s, when Pearl Buck's epic-scale novel The Good Earth came out. It was very well received in, in the West, but uh, it raised eyebrows in China. But the novel did so well in the U.S., and it was adapted to Broadway to be a very popular play as well. So MGM, the head of MGM studio, decided to buy the adaptation rights and to make it into a film. So that created a lot of consternation among the Chinese elite gatekeepers, right? They don't like the way China was depicted in, in the novel. But Hollywood made all the effort to appease the Chinese partner. So the film was eventually made and won an award, won an Oscar. You're talking here about the 1930s and 40s, and what I'm thinking about is uh, films that uh, were released m much, much later. Kung Fu Panda, for instance, which started off as an American production and then later became a co-production and um, has a gentler, nicer image of China in it. And there is also that sort of localization strategy. Hollywood did basically the same there, right, didn't they? Oh, um, absolutely. You know, in Hollywood also uh, made films to appease the, the German government during World War II. Therefore, you have this whole scandal about, you know, how Hollywood appeased, uh, you know, the Nazis, right, uh, the Nazi regime. So, and to, to, again, to Hollywood, it's nothing new. This is from an industry perspective, Hollywood's most conservative industry there, there, there is. In, conservative not in terms of ideology, but conservative in terms of it's a business calculation, so then, um, finally, then, where do you see that relationship then going from here? I mean, we started off with censorship and the Berlin Film Festival. We are now talking a, more, a little more generally about um, the, the China-Hollywood relationship. Uh, where do you see it, it's going from here? You know, I just hope that the world cinema has more diversity. The world cinema is not being hijacked by Hollywood in China. And then we wind up having films that just kind of hyperbolic in terms either in terms of political water carrying or huge shootout box office mandates. And I really do hope that the, you know, the, the room is still there for a more genuine, uh, independent uh, stories with real human touch that you know, films like this can, can survive. But under this kind of cultural and political climate, we might, not, you know, we might have to wait and see. Because in China, there will be huge potential for that, right? There are so many so stories. Many story. There's so many stories in China that are waiting to be told, to scream, you know, to be told. And you can actually make a very good films uh, out of this, barring all the restrictions. So many stories waiting to be told, but so many hurdles and restrictions from the Chinese authorities, but also through the market. Just imagine what films Chinese directors could come up with if there was no censorship and more funding for independent filmmaking. Ingju, thanks a lot for sharing your thoughts and insights. That was Professor Ingju of City University of New York. She also teaches at Hong Kong Baptist University. I'm Ruth Kirchner. Thanks for listening and... Bye for now. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, 
please visit us at merricks.org.